Storygram Network. Hosting for this podcast is generously provided by Transistor at Transistor.fm. Hi, my name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. So it's not about food, and it's not about weight. What is it about? Everything else. Because it's never, ever about food or weight. Never, ever. Not even. One time. Not ever, ever, ever. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It's Not About Food podcast. And every week, we've been using the body love cards that were made by Carol Normandy and I, and you can get them off our website, beyondhunger.org and or off the website, It's Not About Food. Today we're talking about the body love card, feelings and fat thoughts. And the front of the card, the goddess is standing all in her head, if you will, around her head are the words too fat, too flat, too big, too little, too wrinkly, too baggy, too old, too flabby, too soft, not good enough yet, good enough yet. And the back of the card reads... Feelings and fat thoughts. Fat thoughts are the kind of thoughts we have when we are criticizing our bodies, calling them too fat, too ugly, too big, or too whatever. These thoughts are learned from our culture's fat prejudice and body hatred. Sometimes when we are young and experience shame or uncomfortable feelings, we change them into body hatred. When we begin to understand that our fat thoughts and body hatred are learned, then we can take the blame off our body and process the deeper feelings in far more constructive and fulfilling ways. So I talk a lot about this, not only in the podcast, but also in my work and in our book, It's Not About Food, and also just that don't believe everything you think. I would feel bad about something, say like it was hard for me to feel vulnerable. So I would feel vulnerable, but instead of feeling vulnerable, I would feel fat. And since fat is not a feeling, I would have to, when I was recovering, go, well, what does that mean for me? Well, fat for me meant I was a freak or I didn't belong or that I was vulnerable or I was sad. I was afraid I'd never be loved. And that was the feeling. Feeling fat, the fat thought was just on top of the feeling of being vulnerable or whatever feeling it was that I was having a hard time feeling. So I often tell my young clients when they get in a crowd of other young girls and they're all saying, oh, I'm so fat. And the other one says, oh, I'm fat. You're not fat. I'm fat. And they have this whole circular firing squad of fat feelings that one of them needs to step out of it and say, hey, what are we doing? What are we saying to ourselves? What is really happening to us? And to help each other think about what is really going on with us. So I really am so grateful and happy to have Reagan here today to talk about this issue. And she picked this great card and to just see what she thinks about feelings and fat thoughts. 
let her introduce herself and what she's doing these days and how you can get in line with her, that's for sure. Hi, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm super grateful. A little bit about me. I'm a full-time speaker and writer. I've been doing that for going on nine years now. My focus is with general audiences on things like self-esteem, body image, health at every size. And then I speak with healthcare practitioners about providing ethical evidence-based care to patients of size. Great. So my, oh, sorry, go ahead. I said, great. You, <laughs> you sort of read by that really fast, but say that last part again, exactly what you're doing with health professionals, because it's so important. Yeah, I speak to healthcare professionals, everyone from practice managers to physicians to allied healthcare. I've spoken at massage schools, acupuncture schools, naturopathy groups about providing ethical evidence-based care to patients of size. Beautiful. It's incredibly rewarding work and I'm very lucky to get to do it. My little niches of expertise are around research, breaking down and explaining research, around weight stigma in healthcare, around weight stigma in eating disorders treatment, and then around weight stigma in fitness because I enjoy doing fitnessy things. But I always want to be clear that nobody is obligated to participate in fitness and participating isn't a barometer of worthiness or uh, entirely within our control or an obligation, but everybody should be welcome. And so that's my work in fitness is about that. Fabulous. So if you're not a fit person, you can still be a good person, <laughs> whatever fit means, right? Absolutely. I've done both. So I can tell you for sure that completing a marathon and having a Netflix marathon are morally equivalent activities. <laughs> and if you go slow enough, they're both ways that you could waste an entire Sunday. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And one of them is not going to be that you're a better person and you're going to go to a better heaven than the other person, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's just a way that fitness culture ends up being used to perpetuate healthism, which is just not good for anybody. Right, exactly. So tell me about this card. What did this card mean to you, feelings and fat thoughts? Well, I came from a different perspective with this card because I am fat. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that a fat thought would be anything negative that you might feel about your body, whether it's being vulnerable or too little or too wrinkly or whatever, um, struck me as really interesting because all the thoughts I have about my body are fat thoughts because my body's fat. Right. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Bodies of all sizes are amazing. And so my thought was about like having negative body thoughts is a real thing. Yes. And for some people, they do try like couch that in, oh, I feel so fat. And as you said, fat isn't a feeling, it's a thing. Right. In the same way that I don't feel brunette, right? I don't feel fat. I, in fact, am. Well, but the culture that we live in has not made all brunettes wrong, but they have made the idea of fat wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Being allowed to heap negative stereotypes onto a body size is what has created weight stigma, not the bodies existing. Exactly. Right? Fat people aren't the problem fat stigma is the problem. And so in thinking about like working through this card and how important it is to identify negative body thoughts, like in the scenario you talked about with your younger clients, I love the idea of someone stepping back. I also think it'd be amazing if they said, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being fat. That's right. Yeah. What are we even talking about this about? Yeah. And then saying we might be fat, other people might be fatter or thinner, but like, what are we really talking about here? That's right. And to kind of break that concept down a little bit 
rather than feeling that any negative body thought you have, conflating the idea of negative body thoughts with being fat. Because then that reinforces, like you'll hear sometimes someone will get fat shamed, you know, a star. Yeah. I believe it happened to Christina Aguilera is the first person I'm thinking of. And the immediate response is, well, she's not fat or she's not that fat. Right. But she's really strong. Yeah. Or it's like, well, why are we even talking about this first of exactly. all? Exactly. So my thought is always like, so what if she is? Fat shaming is wrong. And the idea is when we start to defend by saying, oh, no, you're not, you're not fat or she's not that fat, then what we're saying is like, if she was, maybe this treatment would be okay. Well, of course. Yeah. Well, racism would be okay if if it were more out there, you know, (laughs) because we're not supposed to be racism, but we can still be sizeism in the culture that we live in. We can still trash anybody that we want to over how they look. And say it out loud. That's the last. We don't talk about people that are in any way, shape, or form able or older or whatever. We don't do that anymore. Well, now I guess we do because of our president. But we're not supposed to. But we can certainly, in this culture, we can certainly talk about people's bodies any way that we want to. And we think that's okay. And we can laugh at people what size they are. Yeah. yeah, I definitely want to point out because you'll hear sometimes people will say that fat is the last acceptable prejudice. And I don't think that's accurate. I mean, Black people are being shot with impunity by police officers. Brown people are having their babies stolen from them. Trans people can't even pee in the proper restroom. Ableism is rampant. So I don't think at all that it's the last acceptable prejudice because if these things weren't acceptable, they wouldn't be happening. Well, that's so true. Yeah. But I feel like when we talk about fat hatred, an interesting thing, researchers who study fat bias within healthcare have pointed out that if they were trying to study, and I'd like as a, I don't like to compare different oppressions because they come from different roots, they privilege different people in different ways, but as someone who's both queer and fat, for example, that if they were trying to study homophobia within a medical care, they'd have to use much more sophisticated tools than they do to study weight bias because healthcare practitioners would not be so quick to That's admit right. their homophobia. But when it comes to weight bias, they're quick to admit. Rebecca Pohl found in a study found that 50% of doctors found their fat patients awkward, ugly, weak-willed, and unlikely to comply with treatment. And 28% of nurses said they were repulsed quote, repulsed by their fat patients. And so both understanding the reality of what that means for fat people, but also the reality of how quick those medical professionals were to admit to those biases. That's right. To state them out loud. It is, there is an issue with how, I mean, we're in the middle of a multi-billion dollar government funded, quote unquote, war on obesity. And so making fat people unwilling combatants in a war. Yes, Exactly. And telling everyone who meets us that they should go ahead and stereotype us, assume that our bodies are a problem and are costing them tax dollars in whatever way that they're trying to calculate that. So it is a huge issue in terms of the way that people feel very comfortable to say their weight bias out loud. Well, what I've heard lately is all of the talk about people who are more susceptible to the COVID virus are overweight or they're a person of color, or they're a certain age. And I feel like we're trying to so hard be aware or not be the person who gets it, so therefore we could lose weight 
and be lighter and younger. <laughs> you know, it's so insane. It's such a control mechanism. That's where it's coming from. Yeah, well, it's, it's so frustrating. And like without charts and graphs, I don't want to get into it too much and bore people with statistics. But the fact is that not every study shows those associations, which suggests that the problem is with something else rather than like those bodies. It's not that black bodies are more likely to die from COVID. It's that racism makes black people more likely to die from COVID. That's right. It's not fat bodies. And this happens as soon as they find out that fat people have higher rates of poor outcomes. They blame the fat body without ever looking at the situation. And interestingly, during H1N1, there was a very high correlation between larger bodies and poor outcomes. But afterwards, when they studied it, they found the entire difference could be explained because fat people didn't get the same treatment that thin people did. Exactly. But they just reach for, well, maybe it's because fat bodies produce more of this, or maybe it's because like they're always, there's so much confirmation bias there that they don't look at. Maybe it's because a lot of doctors' waiting rooms don't have armless chairs, so fat people can't even get in there to see the doctor, or because we've been prescribed weight loss for strep throat or a broken toe by a doctor. So we don't go until we're dying because we just, what's the point? What's the point? They're they're just just going to tell me I need to lose weight. Right. This is such an interesting idea of, I know that I have friends who say that they go in with knee problems and the first thing they'll talk about is their weight. And they're like, well, this is my weight. It's been my weight for a very long time. I'm not overweight. This is how my ancestors look. This is how we all look in my family. I don't have compulsive eating problems. I'm not a fat person. I'm just a regular person. So let's talk about what's really going on with my knees. Well, and even if they are a fat person and even if they are dealing with binge eating disorder, they still deserve health care for their knee problem. Of course. Right. The idea that if we stop it, oh, well, because you look like this, then they don't go any further. Yeah. Right. And with knee surgery, often fat people will be denied on the basis of their BMI alone. So they can't get health care and they're told go exercise on your knee that needs surgery or replacement. This is, again, because I'm personally involved in fitness, I've always been bigger, but before I did a lot of dieting, I was much closer to the quote-unquote standard weight. And I had knee pain, and I went to the doctor, and they must have given me 20 different options for different rehabilitation and physical therapy and medicines we could try. But as a fat person, if I go in, same athletics, same knee pain, I'm told the only cure is weight loss. Right. Right, which means that like as if those 20 different physical therapy options and medications don't work for fat people, which isn't the case. It's one of the things that frustrates me most about the way we look at medical care is that you cannot compare outcomes between fat people and thin people until the access is equal. Exactly. Or between uh, poverty or non-poverty or exactly. you know, this color or that color or this economic group. It reminds me of a class I went to. A man was teaching. He's a knee doctor. He's an orthopedist. He has since retired, but he was talking about people coming in and needing knee replacements and that so many of his colleagues would not operate on people if they were over a certain amount of weight. And his whole thing was the new knee is supposed to be able to hold 1,500 pounds is your person 1,500 pounds or more? (laughs) No, then we can replace their knee. We can do it. 
And honestly, even if they were over 1,500 pounds, that would just decrease the lifespan of the knee. But That's we should right. still give that person some kind of health care. Something. And we should ask, like, what can we do to get this person a knee replacement? But yeah, there's excellent research. And Deborah Gard, who's uh, one of my idols and very luckily my mentors, put together the research around surgery denials for joint surgeries. And the research is pretty clear that the outcomes are very similar regardless of weight. And that part of the reason that fat people tend to have worse outcomes is that they tend to wait longer for fat people to be given surgery. So they start with much more damage. So not surprisingly, their outcomes aren't as good as people who are given the surgery earlier. So again, unequal access. And so we have an unequal comparison of outcomes. Well, that's just such a mind blower these days too. I mean, I need my knee replaced. Both of them should be replaced, but I'm the one who's not wanting to do it because I don't want to get a new knee until I have to get a new knee. And I don't know how much pain that is for me personally, but I know that right now I can handle it. But they never say a word to me about, well, you should do this or you should do that. I mean, really, there is no like any kind of preparation that I should do about that. But I know if I were even 20 pounds more than I am, this would be a conversation. I I do know that. Yeah, I really appreciate that understanding. All of us have different privileges. Like I have more privilege than someone who weighs more than me. But yeah, and it's stuff that you don't really have to think about unless you're larger that you might have a doctor right now who's like, yep, whenever you're ready, I'm happy to replace the knee. But if that person retires or has to move away in an emergency situation, there's no guarantee. The next doctor might say you can't have the surgery. Well, and I'm getting older by the minute and there might be a time where (laughs) there's an age difference. Well, you can't get it anymore because now you waited too long. So I realize that going into territory that I shouldn't go, not only for my (laughs) own health, maybe I shouldn't be 10 years older, maybe I should get it done in the next couple of years. But the point is I'm still at the choice. And I know that a lot of people do not get that choice. Yeah. And healthism and ableism plays a role there too. I think my grandfather got either a hip or a knee replacement. He was bionic by the time he passed. (laughs) I mean, he had like new knees, new shoulders, new hips, but he was in his eighties, but he was very active. He was horseback riding. And so I often wonder if somebody else who was less active would have still been given the surgery so that they would be out of pain, even though they weren't like, quote unquote, proving that they were active enough to quote unquote, deserve. That's a good question to ask for sure. When I did go in to see the doctor who's going to do my knee surgery. I took my book, It's Not About Food. And he had said something on the phone like, well, we have to make sure that your weight is okay. And I said, you know, I don't even want to have that discussion with you. Let me come in and talk to you about it. So I just came in with my book, It's Not About Food, and handed it to him. And he goes, well, I do have to say that I have to have people at a certain weight or less. And I said, so you need to have somebody maybe have an active eating disorder before you'll give them a new knee? Or I'm not understanding what you're saying, I guess. That's so (laughs) So, great. So that's not my doctor anymore. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) like, yeah. I'm hearing more and more from fat people who go in who need, say, knee replacement. And the doctor says, I can't do a knee replacement. It's too dangerous. I recommend weight loss surgery. Yeah, I can cut your stomach open. What? Like we're going to mutilate a perfectly healthy organ to create a disease state to force behaviors that mimic an eating disorder because arthroscopic knee surgery is too dangerous? 
No, I know. It's insane. It is insane. You've been in the field for a long time, so have I, and it gets, I feel like, okay, we're going to finally get over this one as something changes or shifts or in our ideas, but then no, no, we're just as sick as we always have been. It's just as messed up as it always has been. Maybe it's even a little bit more because of social media that I didn't even see coming at all or being able to take a photograph and make it into a smaller, thinner person, longer, leaner, you know, and that person, then everybody thinks that they should look like that. That's a computer-generated idea anyway. So I don't know. Storygram Network. Welcome to One Media, One Media. When you're whining with nurses. It's a place I like to call the bleed. My name is Laura Lee, and this is It's Not About Food. Rich flavor is one of your favorites. You'll want to join me on the wine road. The art of being yay isn't just something he developed. Welcome to Swirl, the wine show for people who know. Storygram Network. How do you keep yourself available to keep fighting the good fight? For me, activism is in many ways a self-care practice. This is just my personality. I have a lot of what I would call personality privilege in that like I'm an extrovert. Confrontation doesn't bother me. (laughs) So, and when I get really like confronted, I tend to get very clear and calm. And that's total privilege and luck of the draw stuff. But it helps in terms for me, because if I'm with a doctor and they're being fat phobic, I have all these statistics in my head and I'm able to be calm. Whereas somebody who might cry, which is a totally valid emotion when you're being discriminated against by a doctor, is going to have a harder time. So I figure with all this privilege that I have, in addition to being white, mostly able-bodied, currently neurotypical, cisgender, et cetera. Like I want to use that as much as I can. My first protest, I coordinated in kindergarten. I got my whole kindergarten (laughs) class to protest. And uh, they sent home a report card that said Reagan is a, like whatever, very conscientious student, but she leads small revolts. (laughs) And I remember telling my mom, like it wasn't small, it was my whole class. And I don't see the afternoon kindergarten class. So I don't know. And my poor soon to be long suffering mother had to explain She's not saying it was too small. Like her, her complaint is not that you didn't lead a larger revolt. Like that's not what this is right. about. <laughs> that's a very, very funny story. You have to write that story out sometime. Definitely. So it sounds like for a really long time, you have been a sort of a champion of the underdog, if you will. But I wonder if there was a time when you were a younger Reagan sitting on your bed in your room and going, oh, this might not work out for me. What would you have needed to hear from yourself who you've turned into be this beautiful champion? What would you have needed to hear from you at that time or from somebody like you that came into your room and said, let me tell you, it's going to be fine. This is what's going to happen. I definitely went through that. I had pretty good self-esteem. And then my friend's mom, and I'm sure she was well-meaning, but she was like, you're going to lose that weight before you go to college, right? Like, you don't want to go to college fat, do you? And that single body shaming comment devolved into what ended up being a full-blown eating disorder from which I had to get treatment and recover. And then even in recovery, I was still being prescribed diets by doctors for years. 
And so I had to kind of get myself off that roller coaster. And it's different for everybody. For me, the thing that kind of snapped me out of it was, first of all, realizing I was doing this medically supervised diet program and it was more strict in some ways than my eating disorder had been. Wow. And because I wasn't allowed to exit, like I was having to severely restrict food, but I wasn't allowed to exercise on the program. And I should have been like, oh, like that's not right. Uh, but I was not in a place to do that. So I was just like, clearly what I know about me is I can't make decisions for me, right? Because I was too big and order, like I couldn't Goldilocks it in the middle. And so I was just doing whatever anybody said was good for me. But I was still gaining weight on this ridiculous program. So I went and I said, I quit. And they said, oh, you can't quit. You'll die. Sure, I can. <laughs> and so they took me into this room and I had a big, that you know, the kitten on a rope poster that says, hang in there, baby, on the yes. wall. It was like the no quit room or whatever. And a woman came in with a binder and it was just full of pictures of fat women just kind of hanging out being fat. Oh my God. Flipping through it. And she said, maybe you don't know it, but this is what you look like. And these women are going to die alone watching television, eating bonbons. And is that what you want for your life? And oh aren't you tired God. of eating your body? <gasps> I know. Like, How I, insane. I How <laughs> insane that they would even think that was a good thing to ever say to anybody ever. Yeah. And like how many people had been like, oh, you're right. And you're like right. got back on the program. Yeah. But I was like, I realized, first of all, I had no problem with these women's bodies. So it was the first little inkling of like, I don't hate their bodies. Why do I hate mine? Right. So there was like a little inkling there. And I grew up in very rural America on cattle ranches. I did not know what a bomb bomb was. So that went straight over my head. Um, but I was like, God, you know what? I am tired of hating my body. Like I am exhausted from hating my body. And I've been doing it like I've like it's a job and it hasn't made me happier or healthier or thinner. It's I'm just tired. And so that was when I decided to separate the idea of becoming thin from the idea of loving my body. So that was like that first thing was like, okay, it's not working. And at the time I still thought I needed to become thin to be healthy because I hadn't done the research on that. But at least I was like, okay, this isn't working to partner these things. It's like, first I'm going to learn to love my body no matter what. And then I'm going to like figure out the health thing. So then the second piece was doing the research and in school, my focus was research methods and statistical analysis. And so I realized I had never looked into the studies for any of these diets that I was given. I was like, well, let's do a literature review and let's find the best diet. Let's find the diet that works the most. And like, let's do that. And what did you find? (laughs) There was none. (laughs) No. And like, I was so shocked because the idea that I could be thin if I wanted to has been sold to me more aggressively in my life than basically anything other than white supremacy and white privilege. Right. And so I went back through the studies and I was literally like doing the calculations by hand. Like clearly I'm not, I miss it, but nope, not a single study where more than a tiny fraction of people were able to quote unquote succeed at long-term significant weight loss. And success was often like the average study participant lost five pounds. Right. Which like I could do that right now with a loofah and a haircut. Like I don't need two years of a weight loss (laughs) intervention to make that happen. Right. So that was what set me on the path, but I feel like it has helped a lot because I know the facts to be true. I had the privilege and luck to have studied these things and to be able to go through that. And so it's not that I was depending on someone else to give me the information. I knew it 100% to be true. So no matter what 
someone tells me, whether they're a doctor or I'm in a debate with somebody on a debate stage, I know that the evidence is on my side. Yes, exactly. For years and years and years, I've had people tell me, well, this certain diet works for me. And it's like, well, what about it works for you? Well, I always lose weight on it. Okay, then you should be at the weight that you like. Oh no, I have to go back on that diet to be the weight that I like. So that there's nothing about that that's working. <laughs> yeah. I talk a lot about weight watchers because like their own studies show the average participant loses 10 pounds the first year, gains back five pounds the second year, and then they just stop counting. Yeah. Said, See, after two years, people are under their original weight. But like the trajectory is going straight up, which is unscientific. But I will, so I talk about this and how their chief scientist went to the medians called that validation for what we're doing, right? And people will come up to me after the talk and it will be a fat person standing in front of me and they will say, you shouldn't badmouth Weight Watchers because I did it six times and it worked every time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I just kind of stand there and slow blink for a minute because I don't want to make them feel bad about themselves. But also like, we have a different definition of work. Of you working. And I. Right, exactly. And I think this is where the diet industry has been brilliant. They're brilliant. They They're better know. than... They're better than the political idea that we have right now that, <laughs> that people who are against giving you social services are going to give you social services if you just vote them back in. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's terrible. Vote for four more years. Yeah. <laughs> but like what the diet industry knows very, very well is that the average person loses weight in the first year and then gains it back between years two through five. And so they've created a bunch of studies that stop at two years. And uh, Lynn McAfee, who's one of the mothers of the movement, an absolute idol of mine, was at the FTC hearing on deceptive trade practices when the FTC said to these weight loss companies, you've got to do five-year studies. And Weight Watchers refused and said, I quote, it would be too depressing for our clients. <gasps> to find out the truth. Yes. To let them off the hook. Yeah. To let the people off the hook. Well, what I tell my clients is if it worked, it, they wouldn't have a lifetime plan <laughs> that you sign up for, you know, yeah. that you get to pay in for a lifetime because it would not be a lifetime. You would do it one time and that would be over and it would work. And then you'd go on with like discovering the cure for cancer. I mean, you would do something else other than <laughs> starving in your kitchen. Yeah. So the first piece is like the studies that are really incredibly questionable research methods. Like I'm talking about flunk freshman research methods class bad. Yeah. Uh, but also they know that the biological response is people lose weight in the short term, gain it back long term. So what they've done is successfully gotten people to credit the diet with the first part of the biological response, but blame themselves for the second part of the biological right. response. They're the ones that are making the diet not work. Not that the diet doesn't work. Yes. And then they've created these legions of people who, you know, in any discussion online where I'm trying to talk about this, somebody's like, well, that's just because they go back to their old habits. And I'm like, so what you're saying is that starvation is unsustainable. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Eating <laughs> less food than you need to survive in the hopes that your body will eat itself and become smaller is unsustainable. Wow. Shocker. Wow. I know. That's crazy talk. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, I correct. also think that in the eating disorder world, which I, of course, am a part of, that there's a whole other thing about, well, I'm an anorexic, but I'm a bad anorexic because I never really got really thin. And it's like, 
well, maybe your body is smarter than you. Your body is holding on to everything that it could get because it doesn't know when this famine is going to happen again. Maybe that we should be glad about that body. It's not that you're bad anorexic. You're a good body. Maybe that's it, you know? Yeah. Well, and I'm so grateful that we're getting away from using like BMI or weight as a measure of severity of eating disorders because fat people with anorexia can die before they get anywhere near what used to be considered like a clinically significant weight loss or situation of being underweight. And so, yeah, it's within eating disorders community, there's like, it's a whole other thing. There's There's a a whole other thing, right? There are eating disorder centers that also have quote unquote, weight management centers or worse, bariatric surgery centers. So they're literally, again, Deborah Gard is the first one who points this out to me. They're prescribing or surgically inducing in some patients the exact same things they're trying to stop other patients from doing. Exactly. It's so unethical. It's so unethical. And it's all about, I always think this every time, follow the money, follow the money. Yeah, exactly. What's paying the bills? Well, we always knew that if we came out like the Beyond Hunger breakfast bar, (laughs) (laughs) breakfast weight loss bar, we would make a lot more money than the Beyond Hunger. It's not about food. But we never wanted to do that because it's bullshit, really, you know? So (laughs) we didn't do it. But that's where the money is, is to sell a diet. And whether you even give them a reasonable diet, it's going to sell more than don't diet. It doesn't work. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. So part of it's like, if the diets they're prescribing in their weight management center devolve into eating disorders, as they often do, they can just take them in the other doors, right? That's right. But yeah, it's, this is a whole culture of weight stigma where fat phobia is real. It is real. It surprised me that people want to not be fat because they're moving themselves out of an oppressive culture. Yeah. You know, where roller coasters and planes don't fit and like fat phobia is real. And so it's something that I talk about a lot when I'm talking to fat people about dealing with fat phobia. Like it's real, but trying to change your body to appease your bullies has a lot of problems involved. And as a queer woman, the way that I finally was able to conceptualize it was like, because I came out in the mid nineties in Texas And I was at the University of Texas, which was at the time like an incredibly liberal school, right? So I was lucky in that, but it was still Texas. But it never occurred to me to try to make myself straight so that I would avoid homophobia. And so I was like, why am I trying to make myself thin to avoid fat phobia? Well, 20 years earlier, you might have tried to make yourself straight for sure. I'm from Texas and I know a lot of people fled from Texas in order to find themselves at a different place that wouldn't kill them because of their sexual orientation or whatever, or their color or their size or their shape. These ideas are still there just because maybe people don't talk about them. Like you said, people are still being killed because of a certain color, but we don't think it's right to, I don't know, say that out loud, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But it is still happening. Yeah, for sure. And as a queer person, I'm standing on the shoulders of activists who risked and lost their lives. Many, many of them, you know, people of color and trans people and uh, gender nonconforming people. But for me, looking at where we are now is that 
as we're starting to outlaw so-called conversion therapy, this idea that you can do dangerous things to make yourself straight, that's starting to become illegal in places, which makes me so happy. It's such a terrible practice. But I feel like as people are coming out, especially with the internet, even if they're coming out in a conservative community, because homophobia is real and transphobia is very real. Certainly. They're at least able to connect with a, a larger community that says there's nothing wrong with you right? There's something deeply wrong with this discrimination and prejudice. With this society, right? And that's what I want more fat people to have. And that's really at the core of my activism is these options. Like you could love your body regardless of how it looks and you can pursue health if you want to. Again, understanding it's not an obligation, barometer worthiness or entirely within your control, but you could pursue health outside of a weight loss paradigm. Yes, exactly. And like, there's this whole amazing community of people who will support you. Yeah. That is such a is such a hope for the future because in my lifetime, being 69, I have seen like little teeny weeny tiny changes, but there have been changes in all of this. But uh, we still have a lot of work to do. But it is good to hear that idea. There is a whole community that's ready to support you if you want to do this. If you want to come out, we've got you. Exactly. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I think about sometimes like, so Stonewall and um, the Fat Underground, which was one of the first um, fat liberation groups, started the same year, were the same year, 1969. And when you see where queer rights have gotten in that amount of time versus where fat rights have gotten in that amount of time and acceptance, it's a really interesting. And part of that is because within queer community, we've chosen to center the needs and desires of rich white men. Exactly. Which is one of the fastest ways to get anything done. And we've left tremendous amount of people behind in doing that. But also there's this idea that being fat is a choice and anybody can be thin if they want to, despite the fact that there is literally no research that would remotely support that being true. Yeah. Well, that's uh, and like it's saying, so profitable. you know, everybody can be tall. Well, yeah. what if you're not tall? Well, then you can get leg extensions. <laughs> you know, you yeah. can... I mean, it's still the same kind of weird thing. It's like, well, what if we just are better if we're just whatever size we're supposed to be and whatever color and whatever, whatever. What if that's not the issue? What if that's not the problem? You're the problem for telling me that it's a problem. Exactly. <sighs> yeah. Well, I know. I saw it during the whole AIDS crisis living in San Francisco and so many of my really good friends that were dying at such an alarming rate, getting sick and dying. And it really wasn't until, oh, straight people can get this. And it was straight men that could get this. It wasn't even who cared about the women that were getting it. It's like the straight men. As soon as that happened, the whole thing changed. All of a sudden, there was money. All of a sudden, there was research. All of a sudden, they were going for a cure. But before that, it was like, who cares? And it's very much like that now. Yeah, the AIDS crisis is an incredible example of stigma within healthcare and to the highest levels of government. You know, Ronald Reagan not even being willing to say the words. And originally, you know, it was called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. That's right. I remember. Well, somebody would say, well, you can't get it because you're not gay. What do you even know anything? You don't even yeah. know what you're talking about. Anyway, so I am looking forward to the day when we will be okay however way we show up. We're going to be able to get a seat at the table and be welcome into the party. It's so strange to me. Like, we accept the diversity of, like, 
noses come in all different sizes, right. hands and feet come in all different sizes, but we expect everybody to fit a very narrow ratio for weight and height. That doesn't make any sense in even looking at anything in nature. Like there is a diversity of body sizes. And if we just left people alone, I think we'd see like the kind of regular distribution that we'd expect, like same with height. But because about 95% of people will regain their weight, up to 66% will gain back more than they lost in every weight loss attempt. And so we end up with people and the actual outcome of being fat isn't a problem, but the idea of then blaming people for being fatter than they started when the research told us that was the likely outcome, the most common outcome of an intentional weight loss attempt. Yeah, you can go on one diet and figure that out (laughs) immediately. You know, well, I lost this weight and then I gained it back plus some other friends of of the weight. <laughs> you know? right. So like you said, the diet industry is brilliant in its way that it's moving into that direction. We have this platform right now. And if there's anything else that you would like to say before we close for the day. First of all, just thank you for the work that you're doing, for letting me be a little bitty part of it. I really appreciate that to the bottom of my heart, um, all the work that you're doing. And um, I think, you know, what I always want people to understand is like, especially speaking to people out there who may be fat, like fat phobia isn't your fault, even if it becomes your problem. And so we may have to figure out ways to deal with it. We're living a slightly different life than other people because we don't have access to the same things that they do. And that sucks and it becomes our problem, but it never was our fault. It never will be our fault. Fat bodies existing is not a problem to solve. Fat phobia absolutely is. And the more privilege someone has in that arena, the more work there is for them to do around dismantling it. That's a beautiful way to end it. I really, really so appreciate you being on the show. And I will hit you up again for sure. (laughs) Anytime, anytime. Thank you so much, Reagan. Thank you for listening. And be sure and follow me on Patreon, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and it's notaboutfood.com. Thanks.